Welcome back to All the Miles Mattered. Thanks again for coming along for the run. This is Neil Amato, and this episode is our second bonus episode. Overall, it's episode 17 of the show about Largo, Lado, and the challengers to those programs' distance-running dynasties. If you're just finding us, I invite you to go back and listen to the episodes. They're all just a shade over 15 minutes each, and they tell the story of great teams and great culture that was created by coaches who cared and runners who were all in. For this episode, you can call it a long run as it goes beyond the 20-minute mark, but it's still pretty concise. These are some clips that didn't make it into the main episodes, starting with the story of Lado's Tommy Hampton, how he came to join the Long Red Row, why Lado had a hidden disadvantage competing against Largo, and how Lado counteracted that disadvantage. Once again, here's Tommy Hampton. Going into uh, the Lato program back in the in the early 80s, you know, is when Lato was obviously, Coach Ennis was just really starting to make his mark with the program in the state. And I think that was the year, perhaps it was 79, that we got dubbed the Long Red Row following that dual meet at Jefferson. And uh, at the time, I was in junior high, and I really wasn't much of a runner. In fact, I was more of a wrestler. And one of the subtle advantages that many people don't really talk about that Largo had over Lato, on top of, of course, all the talent and the tradition and Coach Haley and, and his coaching abilities, was that you know Largo had freshman class. Right. Yeah, he Lato, could coach freshmen. Yeah, and Lato didn't have that because it was you know it was such a huge school. I think we had over three thousand students across just three classes. And in fact, we're so big, had to be in double session to fit all the students there, right? Right. And I, and I think, you know, Coach Ennis knew this, and he knew that in order to have a sustainable program that could somewhat compete with, with Largo uh, over time, he was going to have to identify some type of pipeline that would allow him to develop runners, uh, you know, into his program by the time they were actually under him. And he did that through his relationship with Coach Zimmerman there at Webb Junior High. Right. But can you remind me, do you know Coach Zimmerman's first name? Yeah, it was Phil. Okay, Phil Zimmerman. I've heard Coach Z, Coach Zimmerman, and never really gotten the complete thing. So Phil Zimmerman, he did it with help from Coach Zimmerman. And tell me some of the things that they did. Yeah, so he did this through, you know, with the help of Coach Zimmerman. And Coach Z, you know, he was, yeah, I mean, if you saw the guy, the guy was all about fitness. Right. I mean, he was just chiseled. Uh, and I think he actually was a bodybuilder when he was younger. I mean, he at that time in the early 80s, I think it was, you know, a national program for student health. And you had to see how many pull ups you could do in a minute, how many sit ups could you climb a rope. And and one of the tests was a 12 minute run. And I think that became the place where Coach Z would try to identify uh, you know, potential runners for his track team, and then potentially develop that into, you know, uh, the the pipeline for Lato's program. You know, I think at the time, boy, and and I wasn't very good. I I think I may have just made his uh, informal cut, right? I think I may have run, I don't know, eight or nine laps in 12 minutes, and you do the math on that, and that's not very fast, especially given, you know, the talent that was uh, around the Tampa area back in those days. But that, you know, Coach Z had, had kind of came over to me and he said, 
hey, Hampton, you know, you, why don't you give this track thing? Why don't you think about it? I think you have, you know, some, some potential. So uh, I, I kind of looked into it. That's when there was a lot of, you know, the press and the Tribune regarding the Largo program. And then Leto was starting to show up. And, and it piqued my interest. And, and I started to do a bit, a bit of running. Ironically, when I think about when I started my running, I used to run in chucks. And, and I think on top of that, the pair that I had were like a cyan blue. So I think any, any normal runner would probably cringe at that, right? At the thought of, that's definitely not the right running shoe. That's hilarious. Um, and by the way, I'm just I'm going to interrupt you again just to tell you. So you heard episode three about Brett Hoffman of St. Pete High. Uh-huh. He yep. told me the same story. He ran in Chuck Taylor's and he begged his parents. I couldn't work it. I just didn't have the time. He's like, begged my parents to get running shoes. And, and they just scoffed at how expensive running shoes were then. And, and I did eventually get them. But for a while, I was running in Chuck Taylor's. So yeah, I, you were not the only one. Well, that's good to know. And, and it's amazing to think that that didn't lead to some kind of uh, significant injury in my later running career. But um Having said that, I ran a little bit there at, at Webb Junior High, and I think both Coach Z and, and Coach Ennis would both tell this story because I think they kind of made it uh, a comical but story they loved to tell is I couldn't beat the janitors coming out of, out of junior high. But I went ahead and I, and I went that summer of 1980, and I went to the Leto. Um, uh, Coach Ennis had a, had a meeting for all of his cross-country runners uh, and potential up-and-coming runners at the end of the season and before the summer, and he'd kind of just talk about, you know, goals for the summer and the summer running program. And at the time, I think there was the the 500 mile club and there was the 750 mile club over the summer. And he knew at that point in 1980 that he had a legitimate shot at potentially beating Largo in the state meet. I think Leto was ranked number one in the preseason. And um, he just talked about that endlessly and I remember just sitting in that room with that talent and those runners and that's when it hit me is like wow you know I, w- I want to be one of these guys I can imagine I mean if I went and heard coach Ennis talk about running and competing I'd probably want to sign up for his team right away too so uh and I think I put in somewhere between five and six hundred miles that summer and it was coming out of that summer that actually made me a legitimate runner but I still had I still had a lot to go believe me Tommy Hampton absolutely became a legitimate runner for Lado. He's the focus of episode 9, which is about the 1982 state meet and Lado's first cross-country state title. And it's that race that is now available on YouTube. And Tommy Hampton wasn't just legit in high school. In fact, well into his 50s, he was running fast, like really fast, USATF Masters All-America standards fast. He's offered to advise me on running as a 50-plus guy. I'm really grateful for the advice he's given me as I pursue several running goals. But this show's not about me. I bring it up to say that it's another example of that community building I talked about in the first bonus episode. It really means a lot to me. So you heard how in that interview I was essentially filling in the blanks with Tommy Hampton about Coach Phil Zimmerman and the program he had at Webb Junior High. And why that program was important, because Coach Ennis didn't have freshman runners on his team. Because Leto had three grades well into the 1990s. So the first time Coach Ennis got to see runners 
was when they were entering their sophomore year. Coach Z was definitely into fitness, as Tommy mentioned. He was indeed a bodybuilder, in fact, a magazine cover-worthy bodybuilder. The photo of that magazine cover will be on the All the Miles Mattered Facebook page and my Instagram at neil.amato. This next clip, at least the start of it, is another example of how a natural conversation led to me discovering new stories. This is a 2021 interview with Largo's Pat McDonough. He asked me early on about how many episodes I was planning for the show. I don't know the number of episodes, but I'm toying with the idea of making each episode 15 minutes and doing 15 episodes because the number 15 in cross country is a big deal for two reasons. One, it's the perfect score. And two, you were legit if you could run 15 minutes. Yes, correct. And I just thought that would be a neat uh, numeric thing. It may not work out that, you know, themes make it that way, but that's my idea. Like I've got, I've got a lot of good stuff. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I talked to Dan Lucas, you know, who ran at Lado. I think he was a contemporary yep. of yours. I, I've messaged with Trey uh, Culbertson. Haven't talked to him yet, but I plan to talk to him. Obviously, I got Coach Ennis. Yeah. One story about Trey. I think it was the Countryside Invitational. At that time, I had won every race. And I think shortly after the two-mile mark, I was hurting bad. I think that's worst I felt you know, all year long. And Trey came up and caught me and came right on my right shoulder. And as he came up next to me, he said, all right, now let's go. And basically was encouraging me to stay with him. And I basically, and there's a great photo in the paper with me out kicking him at the straightaway in the countryside imitational. He's in the background and, and I'm just in front of him, you know, kicking. And the only reason I was undefeated that year is the fact that he encouraged me to stay with him. If he had just blown by me, I probably would have just I wouldn't have been able to keep up with him. But he came on my right shoulder and he's like, "Okay, man, Pat, let's go. Let's let's hit it here." And I just so happened to be able to outkick him the last hundred yards, and wow. that kept me uh, kept me undefeated at that time. Ever since then, you know, I've always had the utmost highest respect for Trey because to him, it wasn't about winning. It was just about, you know, competing. And he wanted to beat me at my best, not at my worst. It's a race Trey Culbertson remembers as well. Yeah, I've, I've thought about that comment. Um, it was instinctual. Uh, he had been up ahead, uh, left a couple other runners and caught up to him. And I don't know, part of it was to push myself. Um, he was the number one runner in the state. And, you know, I've been seeing him run since we were both ninth graders. And I don't know, it just felt right to try to pull him along. Because, I mean, I was feeling really good. And, uh, you know, he ended up nipping me at the end. It just seemed like that was his one race of the year where he kind of like wasn't there because then after that he just kind of distanced himself from everybody else and finished the season that way nobody could touch him i asked culbertson if he has any thoughts about how those few words might have altered the season for the teams and the individuals and if he had any regrets i don't know i th think about it i'm like 
deep down, I, I'm glad I did it. I know that that was a real possibility and that could have really changed, you know, the mindset for the rest of the year. Uh, that was probably one of the best I felt all year. But once again, I, I did not wish him ill will at all. I saw it as almost like a teammate, uh, but somebody that I respected being right there. And I could tell that, that he was just, you know, at that point where it's like, wow, it's hurting right now today. But he, uh, whatever, was able to hold in there. So, yeah, I feel good about it. It's interesting to hear that he remembers it, too. In the first bonus episode, Seminole's Keir Breitenfeld had similar sort of deference for McDonough. Remember, he said he really wanted to beat a guy like Roger Letchworth, but he wondered if his own respect for Pat held him back some. It seems like Culbertson is expressing similar sentiment when he thinks about that countryside race. Yes, it was definitely not something that I would do with pretty much anybody else. Um, you know, and like I say, it cost me a chance to, to win a meet and take down the number one runner in the state. But it wasn't anything that I fretted over even that day. I didn't regret it after the race. So I wasn't upset over any decision I made. Um, I stood by it and, uh, you know, moved on. Again, that race was in 1987, the Countryside Invitational. That spot was then Brooker Creek Park. It's now John Chestnut Senior Park. And it was the site of several memorable parts of this story. It was where Coach Ennis listened from the other side of the Palmetto Bush to Coach Haley talking to the Packers about the course. And then Coach Ennis gave his Lado guys the exact same speech, subconsciously mimicking the Haley speech patterns. That park was where Jeremy Duplissy of Countryside saw a heavier version of Roger Letchworth less than a year after Letchworth's college career had ended. That spot was special to Roger and those who knew him. In fact, when Roger died in early 2019 at the age of 50, a small memorial service was held for him at the park. Here's Craig Florio, the friend who rode his bike with Roger on some runs, as detailed in episode 11. He's talking about visiting John Chestnut Park with his girlfriend, after Roger died. It was almost a year to the date. And I was with my girlfriend. We were walking the trails where uh, part of the race would be. And I was talking about him. And as I was mentioning to, to my girlfriend at the time, you know, this is where he would run. A cardinal, this is not a lie, a cardinal, which obviously people think is a, a symbol for an angel, flew right down five feet in front of us on the walkway back there at uh, John Chestnut Sr., and just sat there, came out of nowhere, was staring at us. And I looked at her and she looked at me and we didn't really say anything for half a second. And I basically was talking to, to the bird. And I was just like, Letch, is that you, you son of a bitch? You know, just kind of being a joke. And it was just kept hopping a little bit closer to us, staring, you know, tweaking its head back and forth like it was listening. And it just flew off. And I, I actually got emotional at that point. Yeah, I really, truly believe, and she did too, and she only knew stories of the kid, and she never met him in person, but that moment in time when that bird, that cardinal jumped in front of us, 
as we were just pretty much conjuring up him and his memories was pretty surrealistic, you know, and overwhelming at the time. And I, I, I really, I did start crying. I broke down a little bit. It was, uh, it was something to behold. And I don't know. I, I, I believe that it was him. There remain many more stories I could tell about Roger, but I'm going to end here with one that goes back to his road racing career where he truly made a national name for himself. It was mentioned in episode 11 that he held simultaneously age group records for the 10K and the 15K in the U.S. Bob Brayman, he's highlighted in episodes 2 and 3. Even when he goes on to become a coach at USF, he was still a standout runner, and he thought he could run with Letchworth in the Gasparilla 15K. That's a 9.3-mile race, and he's talking about one such Gasparilla in the mid-1980s. You know, one of my recruiting tools was to run Gasparilla and try to beat him. So it was like, I'm out there running with Roger, not really prepared for quite how good he was. And I'm thinking, you know, if I run with this guy, you know, and I can run five minute pace for 15 K if I run with this guy, he might think that we got something going, knowing he could come train with me and all the guys over at uh, USF. And we went through 10 K at like 3101. And I started to tie up and I said, you know, I better, I better hold it together. There's five days to go. And Roger just kept going. <laughs> you know, he ran something incredible that day. Ran a, we, again, we were five minute pace at 10 K and we, he slowed down. I think he probably finished in five tens or five twelves. And it may have been one of those years. He ran Gasparilla where the wind was crazy on the comeback. Like it was out and back and it might've stood you up on the way back. And it might've been one of those years, but, um, just an incredible, talented guy. In his mid-teens, Roger was one of the country's top runners. Perhaps like Keith Brantley and others mentioned in the show, Roger had dreams of making the Olympics. I'm going to close out the episode with a guy who did make it to the Olympics in an endurance sport. And he's someone you heard from in episode 15 and also in the first bonus episode, talking about trying to chase down Pat McDonough. His name is Nick Radkowicz. And like Roger Letchworth, he was a known commodity as a teenager. He was a standout runner and also a standout swimmer. That combination made him one of the nation's top triathletes. As you may recall, Radkowicz attended Lyman High School outside Orlando. I believe it was the first year that triathlon was an Olympic sport that you went. Is that accurate? Yeah. What What is that like to say, hey, I was an Olympian in something that I did, you know, from age whatever to yeah, age 30, 13. I guess. Yeah, 13, I started. Tavares, Florida, uh, my first race. You know, it. I mean, the funny thing about it to me is that it was just what I l- enjoyed doing. Like, I loved running cross country, especially when I got to Notre Dame, um, because it was it was a really we were more like a Largo or a Lado in that we had some tradition we had a really tight group. We really ran as a team. We trained as a team, you know, that sort of thing. But there was always like a bit of swimming that I missed and I, and I started to swim a little bit there and that's when I actually ran better. Um, and I really, I just, since I was a little kid, I always just rode my bike everywhere. So, so for me, it was just doing the stuff that I enjoyed and it actually, you know, I got to do it professionally and then I got to go to the Olympics. So that was awesome. But the other end of that was when I was 14, I guess I did the iron kids national championship and I beat this kid, Lance Armstrong. And 
when we were doing it, they actually said on the like ESPN broadcast that, you know, it'll be guys like Nick and Lance racing in the Olympics someday. And I think my parents might have reminded me of that like every single year. Oh man! So when it fin- as a podcast so when it fin- host, as a podcast host, I resisted the urge to exclaim about four times in that. So yes, sorry. Continue. <laughs> yeah, it just, it just, you know, it just was always there. You know, it was always kind of hanging there. And like every once in a while, someone would ask me for a copy of the ESPN broadcast because they were doing something for Lance, and it was like, oh, you know, geez, it's going to come up again. You know, the Olympics and triathlon, you know, we weren't even in the sport. So it was like, great, you know, or in the Olympics. So, you know, when it finally got in there, then it was kind of like, oh, I better make it. And I had a lousy first qualifying race. Absolutely horrific. Um, So I had to I had to make it to the second one. And um, fortunately, it all came together that day. But then I got to the Olympics and, you know, it was all about making it. I had a so disappointing race when I got there because it was I just didn't have anything left. I put everything emotionally into making it. Right. And I realized that they were so fast that there was no way I was going to get a medal. So what was the point in coming back? Interesting. Like, wow. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was, it was, it was so impressive how people, I mean, it's once every four years. I think there were, there were a lot of realizations when I, when I made it, you know, a lot of lessons learned. It's once every four years to be, on one day i mean think about mcdonough he needed to be on one day but you know he ran what four state meets um in cross country so you know he he got he got another shot at it you know every year olympics maybe you get to make it once in your life even if you're one of these repeat guys it's like every four years you got to have it right on that day um yeah that was that was kind of daunting i can imagine i mean i can't really imagine but i can you know yeah, it just, but the experience of it for me, that, that was, that was my takeaway since, you know, I, I didn't have a medal to show everybody, but the experience for us, triathlon was huge in Sydney, uh, in Australia. So like when we would fly to races, they would know us because our races in the U S would be broadcast in Australia. They wouldn't be broadcast in the U S. Right. And so they would know us. And then Hunter Kemper and I, that I grew up, he's Orlando guy ran for yeah. Wake Forest. Uh, right. Did he go to Wake? Yeah. Yeah. He went to Lake Brantley and then went to Wake. Yep. We made the team together and we actually went down and did a visa commercial in Sydney at the opera house January and then made the team and then went down and and raced together and we just we went to like every single sport we went to every day of track and field prelims and finals we went to swimming we went to women's soccer cycling i mean we went to everything because our our race was the second day and they usually send you home like two days after your race or event but we, as an endurance sport, weren't allowed to do the opening ceremonies. We raced the second day, and then they let us stay the entire game so we could do the closing ceremonies. And we just, we took advantage of it. It's free tickets to everything. <laughs> Coach Haley and the Packers of Largo. Coach Ennis and the later long red robe. and rivals running across the bay. Been 50 years, but we've still got a lot to save.